welcome back to the Seen and Not Heard podcast, the podcast that is your weekly dirty little secret, which is fine by me, as long as you keep it. I'm Melrose, your host, and this is season one, episode 11. I cannot believe that we are one episode away from ending our first season. When I listen to the episodes from back when I first started only 12 weeks ago, it seems like years have passed. There's been such a learning curve with doing this, not just like on the technical side, as I've gotten better with like the production of the episodes and the quality, but also just learning how my voice is able to have an impact. I've gotten countless messages from people thanking me for talking about issues that face sex workers today, as well as men and women sharing their own stories of sexual assault. I've had people slide into my DMs to tell me that they never thought listening to a cam girl or an escort tell their personal story could be so interesting. All of that makes me feel heard in life for once, which is honestly all I ever set out to do to begin with. That being said, I don't feel like my work here is done either. So consider this the official announcement for season two. Next Thursday is the season finale for season one, at which point I plan to take a two-week hiatus and then launch season two, Thursday, June 13th. Now, I have to tell you, I did have this epic story planned to talk to you about today. However, in light of recent events, I scrapped it completely. There's something extremely important right now that I feel we need to talk about. It's something very controversial something that will probably cost me a few small-minded listeners. So I'm going to preface this by saying we are all entitled to our own opinions and opinions are all that they are. I hope people that disagree with me and what I'm about to say have the decency to call into the show and debate it with me like well-educated adults. However, I'm not sure that's what's about to transpire. So with this in mind, Today, we're going to talk about choices. Controversial, right? Oxford Dictionary defines choice as the act of choosing between two or more possibilities. Now, the concept of choice has a direct correlation with the concept of free will, as one cannot exist without the other. If there is no free will, we would all have lives without any choices to make. Everything would be predetermined. And many people, especially some who believe in certain religions, believe that everything is predestined. That free will is a man-made concept that provides a false idea we have some sort of control over our destiny. Likewise, free will cannot exist without choices. If we had free will to choose things as we saw fit individually, but never made any choices, then by and large, we have chosen to be predestined. We would have chosen to relinquish the power of free will. Many people that do believe everything is their own personal choice based on free will also tend to believe in other things like accountability for one's actions and taking responsibility for decisions in their lives that they've made and the outcomes or consequences that have developed in return. So which is it? Free will and choice or predestined fate? Which do you believe personally? I believe, similar to the nature versus nurture debate, that our human experience on Earth is a bit of both. Hell, a friend of mine just recently found out that he had a son from a high school fling that he never knew existed up until a few weeks ago. The mother got pregnant, 
completely ghosted him, had their child, a boy, and put him up for adoption and never managed to speak a word of it to anyone. Yet now, as he and his newfound son are getting to know each other, it's beyond amazing to see how much they have in common. Not only does my friend and his new son have a lot of strange life parallels, but my friend's biological son who we did raise and his long lost brother have an astonishing amount in common as well. In cases like this, you can see where nurture versus nature takes place and vice versa. Now, in respect to free will, I believe we live a life where some things are fated, whether it be by a genetic predisposition or otherwise, while other things we choose in life determines our paths, and likewise, choosing that path has its own unique set of consequences. However, something I think we can all agree on is that whatever little choice we do have in our lives, if any, it should at the very least remain our own choice, at least while we are of sound mind to make them. For instance, I shouldn't be allowed to tell a racist neighbor that he or she shouldn't speak the way they do, or that he or she shouldn't say certain things because it offends me. And likewise, my neighbors shouldn't be able to tell me not to use Hispanic contractors to build my new home, even though they may believe that Hispanics are taking all their jobs. While I believe in basing who I hire on the quality of their work, that's my decision to make and not a decision for others to impose upon me. I feel like most people can agree that important decisions about oneself should only be made by and for oneself. So why is it, as a collective, our society loves to try and make decisions for each other? Why is it we instinctively think that we're smarter than one another? Why is it that when it comes to really tough topics, topics we often disagree on and constantly divide us as a nation, we fight amongst ourselves instead of taking the factual proven science for what's best for us as a whole? I'll tell you why. It's because our biggest strength and shortcoming is that we are all human. Being human in and of itself means that we are inherently flawed. We are fated to make mistakes and we choose how best we can recover from them. Now, let's reverse that last sentence. What if we choose to make mistakes and we're fated to the outcomes of them? What would that world look like? What if you chose, as an American, to make the mistake of swearing out loud in a foreign country like Australia? Should you be fated to serving six months in prison for it? To Australians, this is probably a cultural norm, but to us Americans, that's a direct attack on our golden right, freedom of speech. What about something a little harder? There is science to support that being gay is not a choice. It is fated. Boy, does that contradict a lot of religion out there, but we're going to save that can of worms for another day. The actual science says that people with certain gene types are more likely to be gay than others. Do you want proof? There was a 2014 study in the Journal of Psychological Medicine that proved a gene on the X chromosome 
called XQ28 in a gene on chromosome 8 seem to be found in much higher prevalence in gay men. That study involved more than 400 pairs of brothers who were gay that had the same gene combination I just referenced. Other research found that being gay or lesbian tended to run in families, like a genetically inherited trait. For instance, if you had identical twins who shared all of their genes, they would likely both be gay or lesbian or straight, as opposed to fraternal twins who were born at the same time but only shared half of their genes. Pretty interesting, right? Science is coming a long way these days, and I believe that this hard science should affect the way we think and live together as a country. Now, knowing that homosexuality is predestined to a large degree, what if you were homosexual? And as a result, in your country, you are stoned to death as punishment. This is a reality in a lot of countries today outside the US. I understand that not all of you agree that people of the same sex should legally be allowed to marry, but I think we should all agree that no two people having 100% consexual sex should be stoned to death. This is, after all, the 20th century. No one should be getting stoned to death. Another example, organ donation. Now. Let's set aside religion again, because we're only talking factual science here. As of 2017, Donate Life America found that an overwhelming amount of Americans, a solid 95% of us, agree with organ donation. Americans agree that organs of deceased people should be donated on an individual basis to living people suffering from medical life-threatening issues. We can collectively agree that whether fate, whatever it has in store for us in sickness or in health, we would like the right to fight it and the right to choose to have an organ transplant to save our lives or the lives of our loved ones. What a beautiful thing. However, what if tomorrow the US government decided to impede on your free will or your freedom of choice, saying that if someone they deemed more important or more valuable needed one of your organs, that they could come and take it without any say from you. Every single American would be up in arms protesting this. There are so many risks associated with a living organ donation that it would be absolutely unacceptable. Not to mention, living people need their own organs. And the fact that our government should not be allowed to decide who is worth living and who is worth dying, especially in respect to forcibly impacting our bodies without our consent and drastically altering or ending our lives or our futures. Living donors can face surgical complications such as pain, infection, blood loss, blood clots, allergic reactions to anesthesia, pneumonia, injuring, surrounding tissues or other organs, and of course, there's always death. It would be so unconstitutionally unfair for our government to force something like this upon any of us. What stops this from happening is the concept of bodily autonomy. Bodily autonomy is defined as the right 
of self-governance over one's own body without external influence or coercion. It is generally considered to be a fundamental human right. You can even make a deeper argument that drug users or people who've had poor nutrition or made poor food choices shouldn't be allowed a new organ if theirs fails. Their choices should seal their fate, which is also absurd, because as humans, we should all be able to make choices that affect our lives as humans, because we are fated to making mistakes, because we're human. All right, well, let's try something even harder. Let's finally talk about the real subject of this episode, abortion. Should a man and a woman, because it does take two parties, even if not equally responsible, is what is such in cases of rape or incest, have a choice in bringing a child into the world? Or does the science of contraception mean its fate and that that child must be born? I believe it's choice. I believe that it is a man's choice to ejaculate inside a woman And I believe it is a woman's choice if she should carry that child to term under any circumstance or reason. In fact, the argument of if you don't want to get pregnant, don't have sex, hold any water, it would not solve the problem of rape, which, as I talked about in episode 9, is a nationwide epidemic altogether. Now, I don't want to get wrapped up in opinions because a lot of our legislation as of late was passed by men in favor of making access to abortions more difficult or banning them altogether. Most pro-life arguments are religion-based, despite the fact that church and state are supposed to be separate. So as religion is not factual science, let's debate what is factual science. The first pro-life argument I see online is that all humans are created equal, therefore all children should be brought to term. Well, this again isn't science. The fact is that actual science suggests humans are far from equal to each other. We all have our own strengths genetically, socially, economically. However, I do agree that all people should be treated as equals. So on that basis, let's argue the all humans created equal thing. Something important to remember here is that a fetus needs a mother in order to survive at all. Just like sperm survives only in a man's testicles. Again, this is the bodily autonomy thing. And based on that definition, bodily autonomy is defined as the right to self-governance over one's own body without external influence or coercion, which is generally considered to be a fundamental human right. If you cannot take someone else's organs without consent, because someone else has the right to choose, as it's their body and their choice, even though it impacts another's life, abortion is the exact same thing. Why should I, a woman who did not consent to having a child, be forced by government legislation to now bring that child into this world? It is absolute absurdity. Just as someone has the right to refuse to donate their organs, it should be a woman's choice with the right to refuse to grow a child within her. Let's leave the moral debate aside because morality, again, is opinion and we're dealing with the facts. The economic impact of legalized abortions are mostly positive. In fact, I couldn't find a single impact that wasn't. 
contrary to bold headlines scrolling through your newsfeed claiming that criminalization of abortion will save U.S. taxpayer money, have you stopped to consider the insane amount of money you would have to pour into our welfare system to support the extra million children born each year if abortion was banned on a national level? Did you know that abortion is actually at an all-time low since 2014 to present day? And that nearly all developed countries have legalized abortion? If you agree that because a fetus is a person and has human rights to life, then you support that more children should be raised by single-parent families. You support having and putting more children in our country into poverty. You then indirectly support rising crime rates in our country as well. Here are the findings from the science that shows how abortion affects our economy. Since legalizing abortion, fewer children are raised in single-parent families. Fewer children grow up on benefits such as welfare systems, and fewer children grow up in poverty. The generation after the passing of Roe v. Wade was more likely to graduate from college, make their own living without needing welfare, and raise their children alongside a partner. Crime rates fell dramatically around the 20-year mark after abortion was legalized. And what about medical science? Well, science has improved a lot in recent years, now making it possible for a fetus to survive outside a mother's womb at 22 weeks old. 22 weeks into pregnancy would make a woman five months pregnant. I agree that a woman five months pregnant a woman who is not in danger from her pregnancy and does have a viable fetus should not have an abortion. In fact, almost all women agree with this. Physicians encourage abortion at the 18 to 20 week mark, in fact. But this becomes the age-old argument, when does a fetus become a person? And unfortunately, that's philosophy and not science. The other facts I feel we need to discuss is how vastly disproportionate the effects of having a child is on a woman as opposed to a man. Let me cite Roe vs. Wade, if I may. A pregnancy to a woman is perhaps one of the most determinative aspects of her life. It disrupts her body, it disrupts her education, it disrupts her employment, and it often disrupts her entire family life. Having a child for a woman dramatically alters her entire world. Even if she were going to carry that child to term and give it up for adoption, her life would greatly be impacted over that nine month period and the months after while she recovered from childbirth. While we're talking facts, did you know that according to a 2018 census, out of the 11 million single parent families with children under the age of 18, more than 80% were single mothers. That means legislation is being passed in our country by men that majorly affects 80% of women. And I'm not saying that there aren't wonderful dads out there that are single parents. However, the majority of single parents are women and women should be able to decide if they want to bear that burden. Because although your child isn't a burden, the circumstances around being a single parent certainly are. Out of the 80% of single mothers in the US, only 48% of them are receiving child support, thereby directly sending majority of single mothers into poverty trying to raise a child on their own. Just to be clear, a man who makes a choice 
not to use contraception or even to use contraception and still ejaculate inside a woman has made a decision to affect his own life. He has made a choice. A woman who now has the possibility of conceiving a child should have a right to make her own. It's funny when you think about things like this on a broader scale. First, this administration defunds Planned Parenthoods that provide many of women with general health services such as birth control or contraceptives. Then, on top of denying women access to contraceptives, they stand idly by as states begin to criminalize abortion. You know what significantly is more dangerous to women than abortion? Childbirth. Here are the stats from ProPublica. Each year in the U.S., 700 to 900 women die related to their pregnancy and childbirth. But for each of those women who die, up to 70 suffer hemorrhages, organ failure, or significant complications. The annual cost of these near deaths to women, their families, taxpayers, and the healthcare system runs into the billions of dollars. So if we want to save taxpayer dollars, protect lives of women, lower crime rates, increase gender equality, the answer is legalized abortion. These ideas of individual freedom are so important to our identities as Americans, yet women are constantly the target of inequality. What if tomorrow the U.S. government mandated that all men should have mandatory vasectomies? A vasectomy is a relatively quick and easy procedure. It's easily reversed with little or no side effects or complications. Vasectomies are widely categorized to be safe, if not safer than abortions are. So why aren't we all riding this wave? Why are we not demanding mandatory vasectomies until men and women consent to having children? Why? Because it isn't right for the government to tell men what to do with their bodies, just like it isn't right to tell women what to do with theirs. I have never personally gone to a clinic and gotten an abortion. When I turned 16 years old, my mother took me to a doctor and she put me on birth control. My mom did this because she was pregnant at 16 years old and understood the way that having a child, especially young, changes and challenges your life. The birth control pill for women is one of the most common forms of contraception to date. However, it is also one of the most damaging to women and their health. A lot of people argue that legalizing abortion is telling women to use abortion as a form of contraception. I can tell you from my personal experience, none of the women I know who have had abortions have ever needed more than one. An abortion is not a fun thing. It is not easy on our bodies or us mentally. No one is gonna be lining up around the block outside a clinic to abort their children. It simply does not work that way. You know what damages more women than abortion other than childbirth? Birth control pills. Women on birth control have a higher rate of breast cancer, depression, anxiety, increased risk of blood clots, stroke, and heart attacks. This doesn't even touch on the fact that women are tortured by the side effects during their use of oral birth control contraceptives. I was on birth control for 10 years, during which time I suffered extreme anxiety and panic attacks, both of which disappeared after getting off birth control. 
When science introduced male oral contraceptives, male birth control pills, nobody wanted to go on them. Again, sex is a very different experience for men in this country than it is for a man. We need to understand the value of our women to our society. We need to understand their roles as individuals, as partners, and as parents. And we need to broaden the term consent to include a woman's right to choose to carry a child to term and bring them into this world. Problems that disproportionately affect women's lives, careers, and finances should not be dictated by a group of 25 men and their votes. Allowing the government to dabble with our human rights is a very slippery slope. We, as a country, need to protect the rights of all of us, despite any and all of our opinionated moral and ethical differences. We need to make legislation that pushes us forward into a better world and not repeat history arguing the same age-old legislation that's already been proven beneficial to all of us. If women could do it alone, get this legislation passed the way we would like it passed, we wouldn't be having this conversation. That's why we need you. We need men. We need you guys now more than ever to protect your wives and sisters and daughters alike. We need you to help our voices be heard. We need you, like we have, to call your local elected officials and demand that women have a say in what happens to them and their futures. I am not a feminist. I am not affiliated with any political party. I base my stance on issues from life experience and science. And I like to ride that wave wherever it takes me. What I hope for our future is that everyone else learns to do the same. I'd like to end this episode with 13 remarkably powerful words. I do not wish women to have power over men, but over themselves. A quote by Mary Wollstonecraft. If you feel strongly about the morality or ethics of abortion, all you need to do is not have one. I'm Melrose, and this has been episode 11 of the Seen and Not Heard podcast. This week, I'd like to thank the candidates running for office in 2020 who support legalizing abortion. I'd like to thank every man who took the time to listen to this podcast from start to finish. I'd like to further thank any person who listened to this podcast and clicked the link I provided in the bio to contact their local elected officials and demand legalization of abortion in their state. Thank you. Next week on the Seen and Not Heard podcast. This is the official last episode of the first season of the Seen and Not Heard podcast. And as such, I figured we should go out with a bang. I thought that we would have multiple guests on to talk about their perspective on my career as a webcam model, my life as a result of that decision, and all the struggles I've faced over the last eight years in the adult industry. We're going to talk to some of my friends, some of my family, and even my husband about what their experience has been like watching me go through everything in this industry. After all, they are the people that know me best. And now, so will you.